You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father, you have promised that where two or three are gathered, you would be in our midst. Our request is simple this afternoon. We would see Jesus. Bless us to that end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going to go right into our presentation because um, it is pretty long, and so we want to use every minute. And so we're going to start with the purpose and the outline. This presentation is designed to demonstrate the absolute necessity of the acceptance of Christ-centered communal reconciliation through the Spirit as a prerequisite for unity and latter rain power. Now look at that carefully because we're making an important assertion that we're going to develop in the next six days or look next five presentations after today. This notion of the Spirit making us one, the Spirit making us one, unity, and then, and only then, Lateran power. Here's the outline. Discussion questions. And then we'll deal with our text, which is Romans 8, verses 1 through 17. The historical cultural context, the old consensus, and then the new consensus on how to read Romans. Textual analysis, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, life in the flesh and life in the spirit. And then finally, so what, the application towards a theology of reconciliation, unity, and latter rain power. And then his invitation, the gospel imperative, welcome one another, for Christ has welcomed you. And so this outline covers the six days of presentation. And today we're just going to make it to the old consensus. So you won't be here forever and ever, okay? So now we have some questions for you. And Unfortunately, we're both teachers, and these have to be rhetorical questions because we can't get your feedback. We would love that. But let's start with the first question. Do you believe that the Seventh-day Adventist Church was called into existence by God? Can you shake your head? Can I get that? Okay, so we're together. We believe that. Given the fact that most SDAs would say that God has blessed the work of corporate Adventism, its message and mission, how do you account for the deep divisions in the Seventh-day Adventist Church based on ethnocentrism, ethnicity, race, tribe, and caste? And as you will see as we go along, we're using this term ethnocentrism because it is the ancient term. The whole idea of race, by the way, is only 500 years old. So back in antiquity, back in time of scripture, the idea was ethnocentrism. 
And so that's why we're using that. So it is an inclusive category, okay? And so still the question stands, how do we account for the deep divisions in Adventism? And by the way, we're not just talking because um, I had the opportunity to serve at the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists for a number of years. And in that role, you go all around the Adventist world, whether it's India or Europe or Africa, wherever it is. And you see ethnocentric division, okay? Final question. What role does fundamental belief number 14 actually play in Adventism? Now, you know that we have 28 fundamental beliefs, and uh, when I was a little younger, before it switched, we had only, what, 27. You added a belief, okay? And so this belief used to be 13, but now it's 14. And we actually call it, we actually call it unity, the unknown doctrine, because most Seventh-day Adventists know nothing about this doctrine. We know a lot about the Sabbath doctrine and so forth, but we know almost nothing about this doctrine. And so that's why we call it the, ad, the unknown doctrine. Now look at it. Look at this doctrine. The church is one body with many members, called from every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. In Christ, we are a new creation. Distinctions of race, culture, learning, and nationality, and differences between high and low, rich and poor, male and female, must not be divisive among us. We are all equal in Christ, who by one spirit has bonded us into one fellowship with him and with one another. We are to serve and be served without partiality or reservation. Through the revelation of Jesus Christ in the scriptures, we share the same faith and hope and reach out in one witness to all. This unity has its source in the oneness of the triune God, who has adopted us as his children. Yeah, so this is fundamental belief number 14. Does it look good to you? Let me see my heads. Pretty good. And so we want to ask a couple of critical questions. My wife and I are questioners, okay? Critical questions. Does Adventism as a whole practice this doctrine? See some head shaking? No. Oh, I guess. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and we want to look at this next question. More importantly, where is Christ's call to love one another so that the world might know? It is not in this doctrine. And by the way, it may interest you to know that our 28 fundamental beliefs based on our preface, these are doctrines that we have developed as a church looking at scripture. And so they're not inspired. They are hopefully illuminated, okay? But they can be changed at any general conference session. In other words, as the Holy Spirit gives us more understanding, they can be changed, they can be updated. It's interesting it that the original pioneer Adventists had only four doctrines. We call the four S's, the Sabbath, the sanctuary, the second coming, and the state of the dead. And so I think from there we went to 10, and then we went to 27. 27. 
So now we have 28. Now look closely at the following video. An apology more than two decades after the horror of the Rwandan genocide. This abbey in Belgium is where the perpetrator of one massacre of hundreds of Tutsi men, women and children sought refuge. Sister Julianne Kizito gave petrol to the Hutu militia pursuing them and helped to set them on fire. She's seen here sitting in the middle. Sister Kizito gave the Hutu militia the fuel that they used to burn alive the people who'd sought refuge in the convent's medical center. It was a terrible thing for someone to do, especially a sister. Such frenzied killings stripped the country apart and also displaced hundreds of thousands of people. The Vatican had previously said such actions were those of individuals. But on Sunday, it accepted full responsibility as the Holy Year of Mercy instituted by Pope Francis came to an end. Human rights activists say the Church's apology will help heal the wounds inflicted by the clergy's role in the Rwandan genocide. It remains a defining moment in the history of the people of Rwanda. One that's commemorated in this annual vigil held for those murdered in the capital Kigali. Sister Julianne was sentenced to 12 years in prison for helping to burn alive 1,500 Tutsis hiding close to her abbey. But she is not the only member of the Catholic Church to be convicted. Several other senior officials have also been jailed for their part in the Tutsi genocide. Human rights groups say that genocide is second only to the genocide of the Jews during the Holocaust. Shweb Hassan, TRT World. Now we want to show you this genocide, but particularly Adventist participation, I know that it will surprise you. At least 3,000 people were killed at the Adventist Muganero Hospital with the cooperation of the SDA mission field president and his son, who was a physician. These two ensured that the victims were assembled at the hospital where they had been falsely promised safety. The Adventist leaders then called the soldiers and the militia for the massacre. This was not the only instance of Adventist participation in the genocide. Some had been counseled by their pastors that killing was wrong only if it were perpetrated on the Sabbath. And by the way, this killing at the hospital was on the Sabbath. The mission field leader and his son were extradited by the International Court of Justice at The Hague. They were tried, convicted, and imprisoned for their crimes. Yet there has never been an official apology by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. What do you think about that? No official apology, and it leads us to this question. What does it say to the world when the beast confesses ethnic sin, but the remnant will not? Serious question? More importantly, is there a word from the Lord? So let's turn to our scripture now, and this will be our scripture lesson for the rest of the week. We are going to be looking at Romans 8, 1 through 17, and we need a word from the Lord. 
Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have received a spirit of slavery leading, you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. And just an interpretive note. This passage functions as an internal summary and transition in Paul's argument to the believers in Rome. So let us show you the quickly the structural outline that the Apostle Paul is using. In this passage, Paul celebrates new life in the Spirit for those in Christ Jesus, the ongoing process of sanctification, this life is shared by believers, both Gentiles and Jews. His argument has four movements. So these are the four movements now. It starts with no condemnation for those in Christ. It moves to two ways of living, two ways of living. According to Paul, you can live based on life according to the flesh, excuse me, the spirit, and then life as children of God. I'm behind myself. Okay. Now, these are what we call the interpretive questions, and so these are the questions that we're going to be looking at this week. First, how does Paul's description of life in the Spirit in Christ function within his overall argument in Romans? Why does Paul insist on the radical distinction between life according to the Spirit and life according to the flesh? What is the significance of Paul's message of mediated life through the Spirit for Christian SDAs living in America in the 21st century, especially in light of contemporary ethnic conflict? Finally, is latter rain spiritual power available to Adventism today? Now, we want to introduce to you what we're calling, and I'm a Bible teacher, 
And so we're talking about a little summary on exegesis, and we really want you to get this. And this big word doesn't, shouldn't scare you at all. We're going to explain it right now. So here it is. Exegesis is used to establish what the text meant then. Literally, to pull out the author's inspired meaning. Yeah, so when we talk about exegesis, we're talking about not reading into the text, but pulling meaning out of the text. It's very, very important. And by the way, by the way, it is very, very important that every believer, every believer has facility with the word of God. Do you agree with me on that? Think about it for a moment. How did Jesus defeat Lucifer in the wilderness? Jesus Christ himself said three times, it is what? It is written. When the Bible describes in, in Ephesians 6, you know, this armor that the Christian needs, huh? it's all defensive except for one weapon that is offensive. What is that? The sword of the spirit, which is the, which is the word of God. And so if your pastor has not taught you the principles that we're going to show you now, sit down with the pastor and say that this is one of your major responsibility to give us facility with the word, especially in these times. Facility with the word. Okay, so... There are three levels of formal exegesis. So here's the three. Here's the big three. And they're very easy. You don't have to have a bunch of degrees to understand how to do this. It's very easy. First of all. Historical, cultural. Yeah. So you look at the context. You know, if you're reading Romans, and we're getting ready to deal with Romans, Romans was not written in the 21st century. It was written when? In the first century. And so you have to know a little bit about the context, the historical context. Next. Literary. This involves the immediate context, which is those texts before the passage you're looking at and the text after the passage that you're looking at. We call that the immediate context. And understanding that gives you a lot of insight into the passage that you're studying. And then grammar analysis. What do some of the words mean? And you don't have to know Greek to No, do it. not at all, or Hebrew. You know, you have so many good word studies now. You know, you have a concordance that will tell you what every word in the Bible actually means, and so it's really good. Now, here's the third level. Here's the third level quickly, and this is the most important level. Theological, Christological. The interpretive key is to discover God's saving power and saving purpose in Christ. Yeah. Yeah, so, so if you don't do this last step, then you've missed the Bible altogether. And we want to show you, because some of you are probably visual learners, and so we're going we're gonna to show you this in a visual way. So when you're doing interpretation, there's two, interpret, two horizons of interpretation. So let's look at the first, the first horizon. This is the horizon where you attempt to establish meaning. And when we talk about meaning, we're talking about meaning then. You know, if you're looking at Jeremiah, you're talking about meaning in the time of the Old Testament. If you're talking about Paul, you're talking about meaning in the time of the first century and the New Testament. So you want to get what he meant then. 
And so the first step is to, to understand what the inspired author, Paul is inspired. Gregory Allen's not inspired, by the way. At best, I can be illuminated, but I'm not inspired. You know, I don't, I don't participate in scripture. So Paul was inspired, and he gave a message, right, to a particular audience or particular recipients. That's that first century audience when he wrote to in Rome. And so the first thing that you have to deal with is the original context. When you're sitting in Sabbath school and you open up a text, the teacher should not say, well, what do you think about the text? That's not the first question. You must show, you must discover what Paul meant in that text, or Jeremiah meant in that text, or Moses meant in the text. Are you following? It's extremely important. So your first responsibility is to discern the principles and then the original applications. And I could tell you a story, but I'm looking at our time. Okay, so the next step then is the second horizon of interpretation. So you move from first century significance, if you're dealing with Paul, to 21st century, to 21st century significance and its application. So now you have the illuminated interpreter, and we all can be interpreters. We have to deal with the same message, but different contexts, different recipients. And so you have to make the text plain for the modern audience. Does that make sense? And so we have to look at Principles again, but oftentimes the applications will be different. Now, here's the most important thing. Watch this. I'll do it two times. Wow. Let me do it another time. Wow. So if all of your study does not lead you to a deeper appreciation of the person and work of Jesus Christ, then you did not understand that biblical passage whether it's Old Testament or New Testament. Look at the words of Jesus Christ, he says. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that testify of me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Wow, what an indictment. And these people that he was talking to, by the way, were experts in scripture. Okay, so let's deal with the first. Let's deal with the first level of exegesis, historical, cultural context. And this is important information, but we're going to go through it quickly. Okay, so we all know that the author of Romans, the letter, was the Apostle Paul. He was an ethnic Jew and a former Pharisee. He self-identifies himself in the first verse of the letter as a slave of Christ. Yeah, and I love what happens next. Then his secretary, Tertius, has a shout-out. So Tertius is actually writing, physically writing the letter, so he takes the opportunity to say, I, Tertius, the writer of this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Yeah, so this gives you the author. And we know a lot about Paul. We've studied Paul. All of you have studied Paul, so we know a lot about Paul. So let's look at the date now. This is very important. So we're locating, we're locating this letter in time. Okay, so here's the date. The consensus date is around 57 AD. Okay, 
So once you say 57 AD, you may not know a lot about that. So here's one kind of correlation that you can do. Look at this for a moment. The whole church existed originally in the Roman Empire. Is that right? Yeah. And so look at what's going on. The first emperor is Caesar Augustus. Those are his dates there. What's interesting is he was the emperor during the early years of Jesus Christ. And it is also very interesting that the worship of the emperor started with Augustus. Uh, emperor worship. And I don't think that that's just coincidental. Okay? So now, let's put up all the others in the first century because we want to show you something. Okay? And here's the most important thing that we're showing you, and I hope you can see the color coding there. Claudius and Nero, because this is the time that Paul wrote in the time of these two emperors. And you're going to see this week that this information that we're giving you now is extremely important. Remember the name Claudius, especially Claudius. Paul writes when Claudius was emperor. You're going to, you're going to remember that? Okay. Let's keep on moving. The audience or recipients. Ethnically diverse house assemblies, Gentiles, which were Greeks, Romans, and others, and Jews. It seems clear from the letter that the house assemblies were predominantly Gentile with a substantial Jewish minority. Now, when we talk about the audience, remember now that although Romans is written to all of us living in the 21st century, it's an important letter from Jesus Christ through the Apostle Paul to all of us. But the letter was originally written to these people living in Rome in the first century. We have to understand something about them, how they would have heard this letter, what were the circumstances going on in their assemblies. I think that makes sense. Now, here is a critical question. Why does Paul write to believers in Rome, and what does he hope to achieve? Ah, this is the big question. We call it the occasion and purpose. So Paul is not writing this letter for his health. He is attempting to achieve something, and we have to be clear on that, and hopefully we will develop that this week. From that question, we go to what is called the old consensus. This is the Lutheran consensus. In other words, the consensus that we derive from the reformer Martin Luther, and in fact, uh, still informs the Lutheran church. Based on the 16th century work of Martin Luther, it was believed that Paul, without knowledge of the situation in Rome, wrote a theological treatise. In other words, he wrote an academic paper to Christians living in the capital city. Yeah, this is what Luther believed. Luther, using a thematic approach, believed that justification by faith was Paul's theological focus in Romans. So once Paul had determined the theme that he thought characterized the letter, then he went through the letter and found texts that supported that belief. For Luther, the letter emphasizes individual justification attained by grace through faith in Christ alone 
as opposed to righteousness by works as taught by medieval Catholicism. Yeah, and so when you see in the great controversy, for example, when you see Ellen White talking about Luther, she's talking about this context. You know, Luther wrote in one of the darkest periods in human history based on the practices of the Catholic Church. And so when she talks about his work, she is talking about it in this context. Now the question. What do you know about Martin Luther? Martin Luther was a German friar in the early 16th century. He was dedicated to a religious life, but it drove him to deep spiritual despair. In 1507, Luther became a priest, and shortly thereafter, he was offered a position to teach theology at the University of Wittenberg in Germany. By 1512, Martin Luther had earned his Doctor of Theology, spending the rest of his career in that position at the university. On October 31, 1517, Martin Luther is said to have nailed his 95 theses to the door of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg. These were 95 revolutionary ideas that served as the catalyst for the eventual breaking away from the Catholic Church and were later instrumental in forming the movement known as the Protestant Reformation. Luther's 95 theses called for a full reform of the Catholic Church and challenged other scholars to debate with him on matters of church policy. Many of Luther's views the Catholic Church deemed heretical. His refusal to recant these views eventually got Luther excommunicated from the church in 1520. In 1521, after a month of hearings before religious and government authorities, Martin Luther was declared an outlaw, requiring his arrest as a notorious heretic. On his way to jail, Luther was kidnapped by masked horsemen, but it was a staged event by a wealthy supporter of Luther named Frederick III. The kidnappers ended up delivering Luther to the safety of Wartburg Castle in Eisenach, Germany. Remarkably, during a year of protective custody here at the castle, Luther performed the incredible feat of translating the Bible's New Testament from Greek to German. By 1534, Luther and his associates completed the translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew into German and published the entire Luther Bible. Luther's version of the Bible quickly became popular and influential, contributing to the development of the German language and literature. It also influenced other common language translations, such as William Tyndale's English Bible. So that's the story of Martin Luther, theologian, rebel, outlaw, Bible translator, and spark for the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago. Okay, based on this video, we have another question for you. What is missing from this description of Luther? Huh? Do you think anything's missing, by the way? Let me see those heads again. Yes, no, maybe so. Let's give you an answer. Almost all bios of the reformer omit his flaws. Yeah. Yeah. And that's problematic. That's problematic. And we'll show you why. Remember, Scripture tells the whole truth. Moses was a friend of God, but he struck the rock. Huh? So the Bible is very clear about a flaw in the life 
of Moses. Is that right? David was God's anointed king, but he killed Uriah. Yeah, he slept with Uriah's wife, and the Bible does not gloss over it. And? Peter was a disciple of Christ, but he denied him. Yeah. I love the Bible because it gives you the good, the bad, and the ugly. In other words, it's true. Clarification? The Bible rejects hero worship. This is very important because... It is pagan. According to Scripture, there is only one hero. Hey, how about this? The hero is, come on, say it with me, Jesus Christ. If you were in Sabbath school yesterday, the teacher talked about this, if you recall. Only one hero in the Bible, Jesus Christ. And so let us now critique, and this is going to be heavy for some of you. Let us critique this, this um, consensus of Luther. The Lutheran consensus, a critique. Although Luther was clearly used by God to challenge errors, especially the sale of salvation through indulgences disseminated by the Roman Catholic Church, and to ignite the Protestant Reformation with its emphasis on justification by faith, not works. Yeah, so this is extremely positive. God used Luther. So let's get that clear. Okay? We're good. Luther's vertical interpretation of Romans allowed him and his followers in Germany to advocate and practice anti-Semitism. Now, the only reason we're dealing with Luther really is how influential his understanding of the interpretation of Romans became over time. In other words, we all interpreted Romans through Luther's eyes for centuries. It did not change, really, until the 19th century, okay? And so that's the only reason we're looking at this. His propositional understanding of the gospel, as set forth in Romans, allowed him to maintain and promulgate the prevailing cultural prejudice in Germany toward ethnic Jews. Question. Now, you've got to explain propositional understanding before oh. we go further. Yeah, so Luther, a proposition is like this, you know, the just shall live by faith. That's a clear proposition. It is an assertion. It is a categorical statement. An idea. An idea. And so Luther set forth really important ideas from Paul's letter to the Romans, okay? So we said, we talked about propositional truth. Thank you, dear. Okay, question? What is anti-Semitism? And is the phenomenon relevant today? Anti-Semitism is another word for hatred of Jews. It has existed for a very long time and still exists today. When Jews are verbally or physically abused, this is called anti-Semitism. The murder of six million Jews by the Nazis during World War II is the most extreme example of anti-Semitism. But how did it come about? And how do you recognize anti-Semitism? But first, what makes a person Jewish? You were Jewish when you have a Jewish mother. Many Jews are religious, but there are several different movements within Judaism. And you can also be Jewish without believing in God. 
many Jews see themselves as part of the Jewish people. Jews live all over the world. That has been the case for 2,000 years, ever since the Romans took the Jews into slavery and brought them to Rome in the year 70 AD. After this, Jews spread out all over the world. Jews are a small minority in many countries. Often, they are farmers, traders, or laborers living together peacefully with the other people in the country. But often, Jews were forced to live separately, isolated from the rest. Sometimes they lived in a ghetto, a closed-off neighborhood within the city. During the Middle Ages, the era from the year 500 to 1500, Jews were also a minority in Europe. Most people in Europe were Christians, and they had little contact with Jews. Old prints showed that Jews were viewed as different, or that they were hated even. Christians did not like that the Jews had a different religion and that they did not see Jesus as their savior and the son of God. Some Christians even saw Jews as the people who murdered Jesus. Jews also had different customs. That is why Jews were often discriminated against and many professions were prohibited to Jews, but they were allowed to work in trade and finance. The negative image of Jews continued to exist beyond the Middle Ages. When a country was not doing well, negative stories about Jews started to appear. They were excluded and even persecuted because a small but visible group of Jews was working in trade or finance. They were accused of being power hungry, causing all kinds of ghost stories about Jews to appear. These stories were handed down from generation to generation and became deeply rooted. During the 20s and 30s of the 20th century, Hitler and the Nazis used these old ghost stories. They made Jews into scapegoats. For example, Hitler accused Jews of being the cause of the economic crisis. Losing World War I was also their fault, according to Hitler. Hitler and the Nazis saw the world as a struggle between the human races. More and more people started to believe that Jews caused problems and that the Germanic people were better. In 1933, Hitler and the Nazis came to power in Germany. They took more and more measures to discriminate against Jews. For example, Jews were not allowed to marry other Germans anymore. People were also called upon not to buy from Jewish-owned shops anymore. In 1939, World War II started. Germany conquered country after country in Europe. In 1941, the Nazis decided to systematically persecute and kill all Jews in Europe. This is called the Holocaust or the Shoah. And not only Jews, other groups like disabled, Roma and Sinti, and gay people were also persecuted. A total of six million Jews were killed. World War II ended in 1945, but anti-Semitism still exists. It shows up in different places, in different ways, sometimes very openly, when people on the street are verbally or physically abused for looking Jewish, when Jewish cemeteries or places of prayer are vandalized, or when anti-Jewish slogans are chanted during soccer games. Hatred and prejudice against Jews can also be found online. For example, 
Myths like Jews are secretly in power in many countries, Jews control the media, or Jews control the global financial markets. Myths and ghost stories that are from the Middle Ages and still exist today. Okay, now I know that this is going to be difficult information if you haven't heard it before, but it's very important. We're going to share now a brief history of Martin Luther's anti-Semitism. Early in his life, Luther argued that anti-Semitic rhetoric be rejected so that Jews might be evangelized. When these efforts failed, he became increasingly hostile toward the Jewish people and concluded that they were eternally condemned by God. In 1543, just three years before his death, Luther wrote an anti-Jewish book entitled On the Jews and Their Lives. In this book, he provides advice to the German authorities and people on how to deal with the Jewish populace. Okay, now look at these seven, and they're painful, and we'll talk about it in a moment. So I'll move through these quickly. His seven recommendations. First, set fire to synagogues, schools, bury and cover with dirt, whatever will not burn, so that no one will ever again see a stone or cinder of them. This is to be done in honor of our Lord and of Christendom. Second, I advise that their houses also be razed and destroyed. Third, I advise that their prayer books and Talmudic writings in which such idolatry lies, cursing and blasphemy are taught, be taken from them. Fourth, I advise that their rabbis be forbidden to teach henceforth on pain of loss of life in them. Fifth, I advise that safe conduct on the highways be abolished completely for the Jews. Let them stay at home. Fifth, I advise that usury, in other words, money lending, be prohibited for them and that all cash and treasure Silver and gold be taken from them and put aside for safekeeping. And finally, I commend putting a flail, an axe, a hole, spade, distaff, or spindle in the hands of young Jewish and Jewesses and letting them earn their bread by the sweat of their brow, as was imposed on the children of Adam. Yeah, so these are the seven recommendations. And then in this book, Luther gives what is called his final word. My essay, I hope, will furnish Christians who in any case has no desire to become a Jew with enough material not only to defend himself against the blind, venomous Jews, but also to become the foe of the Jews, malice, lying, cursing, and to understand not only that their belief is false, but that they are surely possessed by all devils. May Christ, our dear Savior, convert them mercifully and preserve us steadfastly and immovably in the knowledge of him which is eternal life. Now, how many of you have seen this information before? Yeah, just one or two. So is it difficult? I said, is it difficult to hear this information about Luther? Yeah, it's difficult information. You know, um, we were talking to a group of pastors about it, and they wanted to know from us, so how do you reconcile, this is what they said, because they got this from members, how do you reconcile this with what Ellen White says about Luther in the Great Controversy? Is that a good question? You know, because her, her portrayal, you know, her description of Luther is extremely what? Positive, it is extremely upbeat. Two facts. Number one, this book was not translated into English until 1948. Ellen White died in 1915. 
Most likely, she knew nothing about it. And I say this because Ellen White said glowing things about David, but she said very negative things about his sin. And so I'm sure if Ellen White was privy to this information, she would not gloss over it. Because Ellen White believed that there's only one hero, and that's Jesus. And she also understood that we're all sinners saved by grace. Is that right? Okay, let's move. Important notes. In the 1940s, the Lutheran Church in Germany tacitly supported Nazism and the Nazi Holocaust. Some scholars point out the disturbing parallels between Luther's advice in his book and the program pursued by Hitler during the Second World War. Yeah, tragic. Although some argue that this book represents a dark period in the reformer's life, recent scholarship demonstrates that except for a period when he attempted to evangelize Jews in Germany, the views expressed by the book are attitudes by, toward the Jews held by Luther throughout his life. And so... A question for you now. How could Luther have such a profound understanding of truth and yet hate those for whom Christ died? Yeah, so Luther had a lot of truth. Are we in agreement? You know, and we're talking about this because this has relevance for people who focus on truth, small t, and not truth, big t. Christ says, I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. And so this question is disturbing. Let us give you some important background information as we close. The roots of anti-Semitism in Europe. So if you look at history, ethnocentrism, as we understand it, started with the Greeks at around 5th century B.C., when they determined that everyone that did not speak Greek was a barbarian. And the name actually is because they said dogs, when they bark, say barbar. We say they say bow wow. They said they say barbar. So anyone that did not speak Greek was speaking gibberish. They were barbarians and were inferior to the Greeks who called themselves Hellens. And they pursued this process of Hellenization in every place they conquered, making people like Greeks. The church fathers, the early church fathers, misinterpreted the New Testament uh, in such a way as to show that if you love Christ, you must hate Jews because they murdered Christ, and you must hate all Jews because of this. Labeled as Christ killers, the Jews were stigmatized by myths that said they were the representations of evil in the world. They were called a witness people, and it was said that their suffering was an example for anybody who rejected Christ throughout history, they were supposed to suffer. And so they said, unless they were converted to Christianity, they were condemned to suffer on earth as well as in the afterlife. And these teachings opened the way for all the things that we know about in the Middle Ages that happened to the Jews, um, such as destruction of their temples and synagogues, forced baptisms, burning of the Talmud, massacres or pogroms. All these things came about as a result of what the early church fathers believed about the Jews. Now watch the progression now to the medieval Catholic Church. So down we come to the Catholic Church and the early church fathers in the Catholic Church, following the early church fathers from the original church, 
taught that Jews were responsible for killing Jesus. Not just Rome and the Jewish aristocracy that we know actually carried out the, the crucifixion, but all Jews, and not only all Jews then living, but all Jews throughout time. All Jews were responsible. As a result, anti-Semitism became endemic in Europe, especially in Germany. So that people conflated or combined ethnic hatred with religious hatred against the Jews. With the right to exist challenged by the clerics and some of the famous names you know, Thomas Aquinas, uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, attacked Jews, you know, led to attacks of Jews before every crusade. People don't realize this, that Jews were attacked. They were forced to live in ghettos and they were blamed for every disaster that took place, such as the Black Death. They were persecuted as heretics by the Inquisition, forced to become Christians, but even after they did, they were still burned at the stake. Now, we want you to see something so, so you know that the name Protestant, you know, to protest against what was being taught by Catholicism, but notice what happens here in terms of anti-Semitism. Many of the reformers like Calvin and Zwingli, Erasmus of Rotterdam, agreed with the Catholic prejudice against Jews. So they rejected Catholicism, but they still promoted hostility against the Jews using the same justifications that the Catholic Church uses. Most of them held that good Christians hated Jews. Mm. These are the reformers that you're familiar with. And so here's the point, Luther and anti-Semitism. Luther was a product of his time. He was a reformer. Thus, his understanding of the gospel of Christ and his interpretation of Romans were culturally compromised. He followed what everyone in the culture believed about Jews, but he wasn't by himself. It was all of the reformers who believed some of these things. If you would read some of their writings, it would make your toes curl, the things they talk about that need to be done to Jews. Unconditional love for the Jewish other was not envisioned. Mm. So look at the history. And now we want to make the most important point going back to the interpretation of Romans as we close. Luther's interpretation of Romans. Reconciliation between God and the individual through faith in Christ emphasized. Please do not miss this point. This is extremely important. Here is what Luther taught. And we know that some of you are visual, and so you'll get it better this way. Luther taught that salvation was essentially a vertical process between God and the individual sinner. Remember Luther and Catholicism. You know, he grew up in a church where, where you were taught that you could die and go to hell and burn at any time if you were not a perfect person, if your works were not right. And so his conscience, he dealt with his conscience, and so the gospel was really personally good news. And that is what he emphasized, the vertical, the relationship between God and the individual. And by the way, is this important? Of course it is. But there's more to it, and therein lies the distortion, because... Reconciliation between sinners in light of the cross, especially the ethnic other, 
was de-emphasized from the Reformation to the present. Get the point. These things must remain in tension. In other words, you cannot separate, according to Scripture, the vertical from the horizontal. You can't do it. Look at the, the biblical pronouncement in order to support this point. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Is John clear? Come on now, saints. Is this powerful? Yeah. I want to show you something. Western theology it has strengths, but it has limitations. Look at this. Propositional truth, this notion of ideas, this is idolized in Western theology. Then personal conformity is stressed. In other words, the behavior, the thinking of the what? Of the individual. But look at what happens. Oftentimes, relationships are what? Neglect. The individual, the individual, and not the community. Let us show you the gospel of Jesus Christ as a corrective and watch its movement. It starts with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When we meet Jesus, we receive new life. And look at what happens automatically, organically, we experience love for the Father. You can't meet Jesus and not love his Father. In other words, it is produced, this love, this agape love is produced based on a connection with Jesus Christ. But then it doesn't stop there because it moves to what? Love for, for others. Jesus says it himself, love God, love your what? Neighbor. And then Jesus takes it a step further. Love for the neighbor experience. But look at this, especially one's enemies. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And once you add this dimension of love for the enemies, then you got to add some power. And so we take it all the way back over to and through who? The Holy Spirit. You can't do this on your own. And so we close this afternoon with Paul's inspiration and look at that vertical, horizontal tension in this text. But now in Christ Jesus, you Gentiles, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups into one, and has broken down the dividing wall, that is, the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances, 
that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility. In Jesus Christ, and based on his death and resurrection, God, God made all of us one. We are one body. Satan is doing everything in his power to divide us based on race. Huh? Based on tribe. Based on income. Based on education. But Christ died to make us one so that the world might know. And I believe, and I believe that you believe, that we're more than conquerors through the one who loves us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, this afternoon, we thank you for your word. For your word is true. And your word is Jesus Christ. For Christ said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men and women, boys and girls, to myself. Lord, I pray this afternoon for our church. You called us into existence. You called us into existence, Lord, to be light and salt in the sinful world. And yet there is an impediment that Satan is using against us. He wants us always to be divided based on race, based on ethnicity, based on tribe, based on caste. He wants us to be slaves to culture. And so we pray this afternoon, Lord, that your prayer might be answered. You prayed that we would be perfectly one as you and the Father are one so that the world might believe in the power of Jesus Christ. Do it for us, Lord. And with all the redeemed throughout history, we will praise you. We will praise you. And we will praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.